0: Well, welcome uh, to everyone. If uh, you're a guest here, my name's John. I'm I'm one of the pastors at the church here, and it's great to be worshiping with you uh, this morning. We're in our second series, or second uh, Sunday of a fall series in the letter of uh, Romans, the book of Romans. Uh, This fall, we're looking at the first four chapters, Romans, uh, unashamed of the gospel. And we kind of worked our way through the first 13 verses of the first chapter Uh, Last week, and this week, we're looking at uh, Romans chapter 1, verses 14 through 17. So let's hear that scripture now. Our scripture today is from the book of Romans, chapter 1, verses 14 through 17. Hear the word of the Lord I am obligated both to Greeks and non Greeks, both to the wise and the foolish. This is why I am so eager to preach the gospel also to you who are in Rome. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew, then to the Gentile. For in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last, just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, be to God. Thanks Jen. Uh, you know, when you get older in life, at least this has been my experience, you uh, remember some things that a parent or your, your parents maybe did, and you see later what they were doing back then, even though you didn't realize it back then. And sometimes you think, at least I do, like, wow, that was really good. Uh, my mom, I think, did a brilliant job, even as a, as a young boy, kind of training me in emotionally healthy stuff. And I remember even, even as a young child, she would uh, talk about making I statements. You know these, right? This basic coaching in life. Uh, as, as you're talking to other people and engaging, you can always resort to, "Well, I felt this way, or I experienced this in this way." I just trying to trying to articulate who you are and you know kind of what you're about and how you felt and how nobody can argue with that because that's your you know this this is who you are and it's a great exercise in doing the internal work of really figuring out. What's going on inside of you, right? I, I statements. And if you're not able to do that, um, it's, it's possible that you end up moving through life kind of always feeling the victim, right? Like always feeling like other people should know better or they should know what you're thinking. And at the end of the day, what's really going on is we're holding these unspoken expectations and other people, we're just making other people guess at them, Right? we're not able to just say it in a a constructive kind of way. So I'm thankful to my mom uh, for that. The Apostle Paul knew who he was and what he was about. And in this introductory part of the letter, you know, the first 13 verses were really the introduction, and these are the verses that follow directly after that. So he's coming out of the introduction. The Apostle Paul uses three I-statements. Did you hear those in this scripture? I am obligated, verse 14. I am eager, verse 15. And I am not ashamed, verse 16. So let's, let's look at those as a way to kind of unpack what, uh, what the Apostle Paul's getting at here. He says, I am obligated both to Greeks and non Greeks, both to the wise and the foolish. And if, if you were to translate the original language directly, this would read, I am a debtor to. I, I am a debtor. Uh, th- the phrase, I am obligated, literally means, I owe a debt to. Uh, to whom? Paul says, uh, to Greeks and non-Greeks, wise and foolish. That's really shorthand for everybody everywhere. So what Paul is saying is that he's carrying around in himself a debt to all humanity. And you might be thinking, well, how is that? What's he talking about here? You can get into debt in a couple different ways. You know, you can borrow money from someone. And of course, you are indebted to them. You need to pay that money back. But there's another way to find yourself in debt. If a friend of yours gave me $1,000 to give to you, I would be in your debt, even though I borrowed nothing from you. I would be in your debt until I handed the money over. You didn't loan me anything, but I found myself in a place of owing you something because of the actions of another. And what Paul is saying here is that Jesus put Paul in debt to All humanity, by entrusting to him the gospel, an invaluable gift that is for everyone everywhere. So Paul's carrying around in himself this this thing of inestimable value that was given to him by God that is intended for everyone everywhere. Wow. So Paul says, I am obligated. I owe a debt to humanity by this great gift of God. And he goes on to explain uh, why he's eager to preach. That is why I'm so eager to preach. Because I feel obligated, I'm eager to preach the gospel also to you who are in Rome. And and really, this is is the thing with these four little verses. Uh, Really, the first four verses of Romans after the introductory material There is a brilliant, simple logic in these four verses where Paul really um, explains why he has committed his entire life to Jesus and to sharing the message of Jesus. And it's, it's a logical step process. This is true, and because this is true, this is true, and because this is true, this is true, and it's all moving toward a grand finale. In these four verses. So here he's saying, because I'm obligated, I owe a debt to everybody everywhere to share this message of Jesus. I'm eager to preach the gospel to you who are in Rome. I'm obligated. I'm I'm eager. And the logic continues from there. Paul says, for I am not ashamed of the gospel. That word for is a Greek word that, it means for, but in the sense of because. I'm obligated and to, to, to share the gospel. I'm eager to share the gospel because I am not ashamed of the gospel. What an interesting way to say that. Have you thought about that? Why say, I am not ashamed? Why not just say, I feel proud of the gospel? You know, the I statement, why make it a negative I mean, is this just kind of a rhetorical technique? Is, is Paul just trying to spice it up to keep people kind of engaged, listening? Is he using a, a literary device to, to make a point? Some people argue that. I much prefer the very simple and straightforward explanation I heard from another pastor. He said this there's no sense in declaring that you're not ashamed of something unless. You've been tempted to feel ashamed of it. Seems quite simple. I think Paul's saying he's not ashamed of the gospel because he knows what it's like to start feeling ashamed of it. Right? This message is so entirely countercultural. Remember, we unpacked that just last week the first six words of this letter to the Romans. Uh, the subtext of the first six words is, "I do not accept your view of the world. I, I am a servant completely of Jesus, and yet I hold the position of authority of apostle." In the, in the world view of that day, that wasn't possible. And Paul, of course, was a, a Jew of Jews, right? All the, all the right religious credentials from Judaism. In addition to that, he was a Roman citizen, and those two communities. Uh, there, there would be so much resistance to the message of Jesus in both of those communities. I mean, the gospel was an equal opportunity offender to everyone in each of those communities. I mean, it, there was so much in there of which Paul might begin to feel ashamed if he went with the worldview of one of his communities. But he says, instead, I, I am not ashamed. And really, in all, these, in all these I statements, I'm obligated, I'm eager I, I am not ashamed. The really striking thing is the contrast between what he's saying and the experience of Christian people in the world. I became very convicted of this as I was preparing this week. Do you feel, do you feel like because you have an understanding of the basic message of Christ, there are no experts, right? We're just all on the journey. But because you have a A basic understanding of the message of Jesus. Do you have a corresponding sense that you're in debt? That you owe a great debt, not just to the people you like, not just to your family, but to the entire world to every breathing human being on the planet. Is that in our hearts? I'm obligated. I owe a debt. So I'm eager. Am I eager? Honestly, what I'm doing right now is way, way easier than sharing Jesus with somebody who's on the margin. Really, this is really safe. Am I eager or am I reluctant? And which is more often true? Unashamed? Or do the messages of culture creep in? And We all struggle with doubt. I hope that you know that. I do. Everybody does. That's normal. That's why we pray, Lord, help us in our unbelief, right? That's a regular part of the Christian faith. If you have doubts, you're not unique uh, but, but to what degree are we letting the cultural messages creep in and as we buy those there's a shame that comes with it right I mean that the contrast is striking Paul feels obligated therefore he's eager to preach really he's, he feels obligated because he's not ashamed of the gospel and he continues on from there for there's that word again. For in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. I'm sorry, I'm, I have skipped one. For in the gospel, I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes. So for I am not ashamed of the gospel because it's the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew and then to the Gentile. Why is Paul not ashamed of the gospel? because it is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes. Now, we we need to think on this. It does not say that the gospel has power. It doesn't say that the message of God for people has power to change lives. Paul says very clearly, the gospel is the power of God. The, The original word in the Greek is dunamis. We get our English word dynamite from that. The gospel is explosive power. It's the explosive power of God that brings salvation into the lives of human beings who've been uh, uh, held captive by darkness, succumbed to darkness, right? The gospel is the dynamite of God. It, It. It destroys competing worldviews. It demolishes spiritual strongholds of opposition in our lives. It dismantles arguments and assumptions that that go against the knowledge of God in our life. And all for the purpose of saving us from our restless wandering apart from God. This is the good news of God. This is the gospel. I mean, man, if if you feel like you need purpose in your life, it's right here. If you feel like you need a center in your life, this is it. If you feel like you need power, it's right here. The gospel is the power of God for us, not against us, for us and for our salvation. Wow, right? Now, lest we think this is kind of the grand finale and the conclusion of Paul's thinking in these four little verses, we're really just getting started everything he has set up to this point is a setting of the table for verse 17. I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it's the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes because for in the gospel the righteousness of God is revealed. A righteousness that is by faith from first to last just as it is written the righteous will live by faith. The reason the gospel is God's saving power is that in it, God's righteousness is revealed. There is no bigger ticket item in the entire Bible. I I can say with complete confidence that if I would hope someone would take away from my entire career of preaching one thought. This is it. This is the message of the cross. It's, it's the foundation of faith and the gift of God to all of humanity. This is the whole enchilada. It's the promise of God. It's the fulfillment of the prophets. It's what makes the good news good and the new covenant new. You've heard the phrase, keep the main thing, the main thing. If you want to keep the main thing, the main thing, you have to know what the main thing is. This is the main thing. In the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last. That's the main thing, and it is the key to understanding the Christian faith. There's nothing else. Now I think I probably know what some of you are thinking. Because I had several conversations about the righteousness of God, getting ready for this. Maybe you're in the place of thinking, that's that's great, but I don't really get that. And what does what does the righteousness of God even mean? What is it? And and if it's God's righteousness, what does it have to do with human faith and my faith? at our worship planning meeting we talked about this a bit uh, this past week and in our, in our culture when we hear the phrase the righteousness of God uh, for some of us there might be negative connotations associated with that not for all of us but somehow in our culture the word righteousness has inner echoes of self-righteousness right? of, of hypocrisy of I'm better than you kinds of thinking. So we need to reframe this and get back to what the Bible actually means by it, the the righteousness of God. Over over the summer, uh, we kind of walked through some of the names of God in the Old Testament. And one of the names that we looked at this summer was the the name Yahweh Sidkenu, or the Lord our righteousness, the Lord who makes us righteous. And there isn't time to kind of redo that that whole message, but uh, the the Old Testament does have just a couple things to say about god 's righteousness that are really important. Um, the, the first is that in the Old Testament, the word we translate as righteousness was a word that literally meant stiff or straight in the sense of being unbroken and Uh, For those of you who were here, I shared that story about breaking my arm, riding my bike. Uh, It was between my first and second grade year. I wiped out of my bike and broke my arm, and it was bad. It was bent like this, like it was bad. Um, The orthopedic doctor made me righteous again when he, he made me unbroken by setting my arm and that, that is the easiest way to understand what the Bible means by righteousness, is to think of it as the state of being pure and whole, straight in the sense of being unbroken, the state where nothing needs to be fixed because nothing is broken. That's what being righteous means. So it's pretty, pretty easy in that sense to understand that God is righteous because you know, there's nothing in God that is bent or, or off, or not the way it's supposed to be. God is without any need of fixing or correcting. Nothing in God needs to be set aright because nothing in God is amiss or wrong. Says the scripture, the Lord is righteous, meaning whole, entirely unbroken, completely uh, 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 not in need of fixing. Righteous. That's the first thing, meaning of righteousness. Second thing, through the meaning of that name, Yahweh Tzidkenu, God says, I will come to you, my people, myself, to make you righteous or unbroken like me. That was the promise of that Old Testament name, that there would be a day when God came himself to humanity to make us right again as if we had never been broken. And with that background, we come to this verse. For in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. Yes, God is righteous, but look at the verse. A righteousness that is by faith from first to last. God doesn't have to have faith. We have faith. So this is about a righteousness that's heading our direction, now, when Paul says the righteousness of God is revealed, we're, we're not just talking about the fact that God is righteous. We already know that from the Old Testament. That's already clear. So what's new here? When the answer to that question was revealed to Martin Luther, he said that was the very moment that he became a Christian, that he was born again, when he understood this main thing, Here's what he wrote. Read along as I read it to you. In your own minds, that is. I had greatly longed to understand Paul's letter to the Romans, and nothing stood in the way but that one expression, the righteousness of God. Because I took it to mean that righteousness whereby God is righteous and acts righteously in punishing the unrighteous. Night and day I pondered until I grasped the truth that the righteousness of God is that righteousness through grace and sheer mercy, whereby through grace and sheer mercy he justifies us by faith. Thereupon I felt myself to be reborn and to have gone through open doors into paradise. The whole of scripture took on a new meaning and whereas before the righteousness of God had filled me with hate, now it became to me inexpressibly sweet in greater love. This passage of Paul became to me a gateway into heaven. What's new here is that the righteousness of God Is given to us by faith in Jesus. For in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last, just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. You know, understanding this verse is understanding the good news of Jesus, the gospel. Back to Paul's logic the gospel is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes because in it, the righteousness of God is revealed, meaning God making human beings whole and unbroken again by bestowing upon us a righteousness, a wholeness, an unbrokenness, which is not our own, but God's. Very simply put, by faith in Jesus, we get God's righteousness, This is the deal. You know, in the New Testament, the word for righteousness and the word for justification share the same root. It's really the same word. Uh, So, justification literally means righteousing or making righteous that which is not. That's the good news, friends. Because if we have ever paused long enough, slowed down to look inside and to realize it's not just that the world's broken, it's not just that everybody out there has a problem. The problem is that I am broken. The problem is that I need to be made whole again. And I cannot do that. I don't have the tools to fix me. And you don't have the tools to fix you. See, justification is about God regarding us as righteous Counting us as righteous, declaring us to be righteous, meaning whole and unbroken in every way. All because of what Jesus has done on our behalf. I and mean, that's that's what we celebrate when we come to the Lord's table. Whenever we, we celebrate communion, it's about this. Remember that the words of the communion service, this is my body, said Jesus, given for you. The once for all sacrifice by which we're covered and and through which we are declared righteous in God's sight. This cup is the new covenant in my blood. And what exactly is new again? There's not time to do the whole thing, but in the Old Testament when God uh, came to Abram, soon to become Abraham, and created the covenant with him. Remember, it was a blood covenant And it adhered to all the the protocol of a covenant in those days. God asked Abram to get animals and they were sliced lengthwise in two and laid half on this side, half on this side with all their blood in the middle. And as one person walked through the pool of blood between the split animals, they would walk through and look at the other person with whom they were making a covenant. And as they walked through, what was communicated was, may it be to me like these animals if I don't keep my end of this deal. And remember, as the story in Genesis goes, uh, the, 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 the smoking pot and flaming torch kind of passed through there. God was foreshadowing that he would keep both ends of the deal, that he himself would be both parties going through that blood covenant. That's what makes the new covenant new. Jesus snuck around to our side And kept our end of the covenant. And it was to him like those animals. His blood was poured out. His life sacrificed because of our failure to keep the commitment. Because of our failure to be righteous. That the covenant might be fulfilled finally and fully. And we might be declared, counted as righteous, perfect, whole, unbroken in the sight of God. So God keeps his end of the deal and in Jesus, he sneaks around to our side and keeps our end of the deal for us. That's the new deal. And friends, it is a good deal. This is the whole thing. Really, at this point in my life, I don't know how to make it any clearer. This is... The entire Christian faith summed up in four verses. This is volumes of theology summed up in, in four verses: the great exchange." That, that this is not simply a religion among the smorgasbords of faith from which we might choose as human beings. See, if we view religion that way, we are disclosing that we bring to our spiritual thinking the assumption of uh, a secular humanism. That human beings are at the center and it's our job to choose which faith we'd like. So even that perspective on thinking about faith reveals you've already chosen a faith. Yours is secular humanism. But if we really ask the deeper questions, what may be known in this world and why? it brings us right back to what the Apostle Paul says is the first step of Christianity, which is exploring the claim that Jesus was raised from the dead. And I, for one, am firmly convinced that if an unbiased, critically-minded person starts walking that road and honestly exploring that claim, you bump in to an overwhelming flood of evidence. No one is ever convinced into the kingdom of God. But I know the experience of needing to have the barrier of my mind overcome, my complaints, my my resistance. And whenever I got close to this message, That there really is a God, that that God has actually done something in this world for me, for the purpose of making me perfectly whole and entirely unbroken in God's sight. That there would arise in me, it, it was like a movie where somebody did something on a computer and the lines of code just started going just resistance, reasons this couldn't be true, just my mind was flooded. If you've experienced that, ask yourself why that's happening. Because Christians have an explanation. That there is drastic spiritual opposition to human beings internalizing this. Really getting it here, not just here. Because when you get here, as a Christian, God views you not according to all your failures of the past week, but according to the perfect obedience of Jesus on your behalf. And that when God looks at you, he sees a being that is entirely whole and unbroken, perfect in the sight of God. The curtain's been torn in two. There's nothing that separates the people of God from the presence of God. Right? This is why we may approach the throne of grace with confidence, says the author of Hebrews. Hebrews because we have been made, counted, regarded as perfect and unbroken in God's sight because of what Jesus has done for us. That's the gospel, and it's great news. And wherever you're at along the journey, if you want to talk more about it, I'd love that. And I promise no arm twisting, right? This, This is what we do. As a church, and this is the message we have for the world. And you can begin to sense why Paul felt obligation, how good the good news is, how free we can really live in Christ as we believe that God sees us as perfect in Christ. This is the whole thing, and we access this by faith, you know, by trust. As we overcome all those arguments as to why this could never be, and simply move through that and cry out to God and say, Yes, I need help. Would you please help me? That's really the first step. And if you've never taken it, I invite you to take it today. Let's pray. God, we do thank you for the message of the cross, the message of the gospel, that you have done all of this on our behalf. The scripture says that while we were still in our sins, you died for us, meaning at that very moment when we were most offensive to you, you chose to run to us and sacrifice your whole self on our behalf. Father, fill us with that perfect love by the power of your spirit that all of our fears might be driven away. And empower us uh, to embrace the identity you've given us in Christ, the identity of being whole and unbroken, regarded as your daughter or your son, dearly loved, and those in whom you are well pleased. God, give us power to believe it and help us in every way in our faith. We ask it in Jesus' name, amen.